Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, who is Dominic Cummings? In Channel 4's Brexit film, the main protagonist was Leave campaign strategist Dominic Cummings. Played by Benedict Cumberbatch, he was portrayed as a somewhat flawed genius. But Dominic Cummings isn't a Hollywood mystery character. He is UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's special advisor, and he has been talked about a lot of late. Some examples? Dominic Cummings is the disruptor's disruptor. He's strategically single-minded and ideologically iconoclastic. Or Dominic Cummings is an unelected, foul-mouthed liability who has no place at the heart of a conservative Downing Street. Which is more accurate, or are they both accurate? To help us figure that out, I'm joined in studio by our Brexit reporter, Grania Nia, and Dr. Kevin Cunningham, TU politics lecturer, who in a previous life worked within British political parties. We'll also be talking to Tom Chivers, science writer and journalist, who has written about Cummings and has insights into the part of the internet he hangs out in. But first, Grania. I need to get Benedict Cumberbatch out of my head when I think about Dominic Cummings. So tell me who he is. Give me a bit of a CV around who this guy really is. So there's a lot of focus on Dominic Cummings, uh, who is described as a blunt, energetic, clever man who inspires loyalty, as well as that he's described as Machiavellian, Downing Street's Rottweiler and an infuriating character. And he's drawn the ire of Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, former Chancellor Ken Clark and Sir John Major, a former Prime Minister. So he's had a lot of people talking about him this week. He has an interesting CV. He's a graduate of Oxford and he got a first in history, which makes sense why... Totally makes sense now. Boris Johnson's yeah. such good friends with him. Um, he also is a Russophile. He's very interested in Dostoevsky and actually lived in post-Soviet Russia for three years. In 2001, he headed up a campaign... So he's interested... Sorry, just stop you there. He's interested in Russian politics, how they do things in Russia, just their way of Russian life. Russian culture, all of it. Um, it seems more of a vocation than a professional uh, interest for him. Uh, more professionally, he was on the political sphere. In 2001, he headed up a campaign against adopting the euro. Looking back now, that's not very surprising, as part of the Business for Sterling group. He left that in January 2002 to become the head of strategy for the Conservative Party. So obviously he was successful in in not getting the euro. So then he went on and got a job. Yeah, he seems to be quite good at campaigns, um, particularly. Uh, So much so that in 2007, Michael Gove uh, took him on as his advisor in opposition right up until his time in government in January 2014. And he worked with Gove during Gove's time as Secretary of Education as his uh, Chief of Staff. That it was then apparently that he uh, first realised that the UK and the EU were incompatible, according to an interview with The Economist from before the referendum. Uh, He left that and then reappeared in 2016 as part of the head of the Vote Leave campaign. And of course, now we know him as uh, Boris Johnson's advisor in number 10. So for that Leave campaign, was it more about winning the campaign as a campaigner or was it about his own belief system? It seemed to be about his own belief system. Um, we get a very clear insight into Dominic Cummings from his blog and he has very strong opinions on how things should be done. And one of those things that we learned in an interview with Dominic Cummings is that the EU's system of officials and the, the Whitehall system or the British civil service just don't work together. They're, they're not compatible with each other. He also says that like he believes the EU will break up in a couple of years and that 
Britain needs to forge its own path outside of that before that happens. It's really interesting, though, because he's obviously very clever about going about achieving what he thinks is ideologically best through a campaign. He said that for a vote uh, leave to win, that campaigners had to de-risk the prospect of Brexit by portraying a vote to stay in the EU as the more risky option. A very clever way of of getting a message across to people. And he seemed to really believe as well that he understood what voters really cared about, as opposed to the, the politicians that voters on the street needed to know and needed to understand things that were very personal to them. That was a core message of the Vote Leave campaign and one of the reasons why it was so successful. And that is kind of why he is in number 10 now as well, that he was so good at understanding the things that mattered to people and the things that were just political fluff as he saw them. And he's very uh, critical of the political classes who he calls unintelligent and accuses them of sharing vague dinner party speculations about the distant future or gossip about daily crisis without having any depth to what they're talking about or what they're doing with the country, which obviously seems quite harsh. But again, he's in number 10. In terms of that referendum win, do people who are good election strategists become good government advisors, Kev? It's definitely a very different role. It's very unusual for a campaigner to be uh, in the role that Dominic Cummings is. Normally, normally, in a political party, there's there's usually two wings. There's the kind of um, wing that has uh, the head office, let's say, and consider that the kind of permanent civil service of any given political party. There are people that will be there in and out no matter who the leader is. They basically manage campaigns. They concern themselves constantly with the constant campaign, whether it's a by-election, general election, European election or whatever it is. They're constantly working, messaging, kind of getting leaflets, doing ordinary campaigns. Then you usually have the other wing, which is the leadership team. Now, Dominic Cummings has effectively moved from what is normally the kind of campaign side of politics to the leadership side of politics. The leadership team is increasingly, over the last couple of decades, more and more influential and more and more money is going into the leadership team side of politics. So uh, Leo Varadkar, wherever the leader is, kind of surrounds themselves with more and more people. Now, typically... The campaign side, the head office, which is usually headed up by a general secretary or chairman, depending whether it's a left wing or a right wing uh, political party, uh, that's, as I said, that's permanent. But the leadership team is usually kind of matey. They're usually the people that people have met on the way up. And the most important characteristic is that they trust them. So it's very hard to get into what that inner circle is. You may be usually, you, you could be a genius about politics, but you need the leader to trust you quite a lot. So it's quite unusual for someone like Dominic Cummings to move from, say, Michael Gove to uh, Boris Johnson. But it's it's reflective of the situation that Boris Johnson finds himself in. He is, as he's come in here, he has basically started on an election footing. He's not thinking of it as if he had a large majority. So like when, when Blair was around, his advisors would have been like Mandelson, uh, Alistair Campbell. They would have been focusing on kind of managing the message, making sure that they don't lose too many voters. Boris Johnson has effectively no majority and he had no majority as soon as he walked in there, really, because there's such a large number of MPs that didn't support him at all. So he is looking at this from an election footing and Dominic Cummings is clearly a massive risk taker. Uh, Gronje mentioned his 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 time in, in Russia. I thought it was very interesting to find out that one of the stories about him is that he tried to set up an airline in, in Russia, which strikes me as a kind of a very unusual thing and very... Uh, someone who's very confident in their own abilities to leave one country and try and set up an airline in Russia, and which obviously uh, didn't succeed, I, I believe. I believe there was one flight and uh, only one passenger, and apparently the pilot went off without 
picking up that passenger. So <laughs> it wasn't the most successful uh, enterprise. So He does have blips on the record. <laughs> so yeah, so Dominic Cummings is clearly uh, someone who thinks very highly of, on, of his own abilities. A lot of people think very highly of his abilities following this referendum. But I think there's a lot that's attributed to this referendum when in fact, actually, I think in reality, it was probably always going to be a leave vote because the long run public opinion on the EU in the UK was for leave, you know. There was around 50% or 52% opposing EU membership for a very long time. So Cummings' abilities are kind of overstretched, really. And so that was an easier job than people thought it was. It's a much easier job. And and look, kind of the role of Facebook ads is kind of one of these things that we talk about for, for a long time. So he's coming in this with this kind of massive ego. And I think this ego is kind of creating this arrogance that essentially is eroding his intelligence. And as I mentioned, uh, sometimes, uh, I don't know if you imagine, if you ever play chess or anything like that, sometimes I play chess online and if I'm in a very arrogant, confident mood, I invariably lose no matter what because I, you can't concentrate on your opponent. You can't really think if you don't respect your opponent, you invariably don't spot the things that they're more or less likely to do. They were so confident in their strategy that they've effectively undone their strategy around a no-deal Brexit where... Parliament invariably assuming the Lords will be able to pass things uh, in the past the legislation. They are basically going to force Boris Johnson to go to Brussels to ask for an extension. Otherwise, he's, he's, he's going to break the law and like it'd be very unusual for a prime minister to get arrested. Is it very unusual as well that we're even talking about someone who's advising the prime minister, that we know his name, that we know what he looks like now, that we know some of his idiosyncrasies, like, you know, he wears jeans and T-shirts and, and all of that. He goes around drinking red wine in front of people in, yeah. in the House of Commons. Yeah. Is that a departure from normal advising roles? It is because in any like, any campaigns I've been involved in where like in where there's a significant team, there's always this battle between different advisors. There are people coming in, maybe the head of communications, maybe some people have kind of adjunct roles, people have unofficial roles. There's lots of people surrounding the leader of any party who are competing for access to the leader. And usually in that competition, if they get into the limelight, then that's quite bad because then they become part of the story and then the leader themselves can't say, well, I'm getting this from this person. It, it kind of undermines that relationship. So it's actually not in someone's interest to do that normally, to kind of be part of the story. If you remember Ollie Robbins, he was Theresa May's man in Brussels and he was negotiating on her behalf with the EU, this withdrawal agreement. All these red lines were discussed and he appeared in the headlines in the UK because he was seen to be one of the reasons, if not the reason in, in some publications for all the concessions that were given into, all the red lines that were kind of reneged upon uh, and le- led to this withdrawal agreement that can't get through the House of Commons because of that. So he appeared in the headlines for all the wrong reasons again, uh, which is a perfect example of that. Cummings is different, though, in the sense that he's making very personal attacks about politicians and they're vitriolic and vicious. I mean, he's called the European Research Group a narcissist delusional subset, useful idiots, and referred to them as a tumour. He's called other politicians egomaniacs, ironically, maybe. And it's that kind of approach to things that is going to shorten his career, basically. It's very Malcolm Tucker-esque from The Thick of It, where he's kind of using these acid tongue remarks to whip people into line, but it's not working. Yeah, because that that quote I said at the start about being the unelected, foul-mouthed liability, 
that's what we're hearing more from even within the Tory party, the rising anger against him from within the party he's meant to be working for. Surely that undercuts what he's trying to do. Undercuts what Boris is trying to do? Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, the, you know, there, there are stories like Barrett, Dominic Cummings and, and other stories around kind of presentation of politics, like people really didn't like Alistair Campbell for a long period of time. I'm not sure if that's the sort of stuff that influences voting behaviour. At the end of the day, there are kind of core things, you know, that, that will really drive whether someone will vote. Certainly in this election, there seems to be two very clear camps. There's the Tory Brexit camp and then there's Labour Lib Dem, SNP Green, Plaid camp. And the, there just won't be more. There just hasn't been, even though the polls have kind of gone up and down quite a lot, uh, there hasn't been any drift between these two camps. The Labour, as the, as the Lib Dems go up, the Labour Party goes down and, and so on. And so in terms of what he's trying to achieve, if it's going to be an election very soon, it does make sense to have Dominic Cummings there and to have him in a position where he is the authority to kind of command the leadership side of things as well as the campaign on the ground. So do you think that that, that message won't really land with voters, this unelected person is really the puppeteer and, and Boris Johnson et al. aren't really in charge? No, I don't think it will land. I think at the end of the day, Boris is probably in charge, even though people say, oh, you know, there's always a conflict between backbenchers and the unelected uh, person uh, who's, who's, who's involved in strategy. And that kind of gets blown out in, in, into the public. But I don't think people care very much about that sort of stuff. And I think at the end of the day, in spite of, you know, Dominic Cummings' influence, at the same time, it is Boris who is making the decisions. Like he is, he is the person that, that is making these decisions. It is quite useful for Boris to have Dominic Cummings. So if a decision gets made, he could conveniently blame one of his advisors very easily. And it's a very easy narrative for him to tell if he, if he suddenly shifts it on and say, oh, that wasn't me, that was his idea. Done. You know, in the same way, Trump seems to try and have an advisor push them out the door when anything happens. It's hard to see Dominic Cummings going anywhere quietly. But at the same time, if these incidents get more and more public and keep happening, I don't know if they'll be left with any more choice. We saw that Dominic Cummings fired one of Sajid Javid's aides, uh, Sonia Khan, on the spot. And there are questions immediately after that around, did he follow proper HR protocol? Why didn't he tell Sajid Javid before it happened? Why was it all called last minute? She was given five minutes notice that something was happening and wasn't aware of what was going to go on, reportedly. And then also she was escorted off the premises by armed Met police, which all seems quite unofficial and not according to protocol. The reports of what happened between uh, Dominic Cummings and Sonia Khan in that meeting between the two of them also seems quite inappropriate. Like he he asked her, had she been in touch with Philip Hammond, the former chancellor, who was obviously a Tory rebel now as well, and or any of his team. And she had said she hadn't met with anyone, handed over her work and personal phone seemingly willingly. And in response, Dominic Cummings says one of Hammond's aides numbers is on your phone and I'm firing you as a result. There were allegations about whether there were something had been leaked or something in relation to the Yellowhammer document, which was all these secret no deal plans. But nothing was confirmed. There was no kind of process to explain everything that happened. And Khan is a veteran of Whitehall, is a long standing employee of the, the Tory party in government. And it seemed a very reactionary, angered response to the whole to the whole incident. 
Would that be normal behavior for an advisor to be able to just sack someone else's people in that wing of the no, of the party? No, very unusual. And he isn't necessarily chief of staff either. He's kind of a special advisor, which is even more un- unusual. So he's not, he's clearly an advisor in relation to an upcoming election, you know, and he's kind of taking control over this sort of situation. It is a major threat in a way, because what we're seeing in a lot of elections uh, these days is that leadership is actually becoming more and more influential. People's loyalty to particular political parties is declining and they're following leaders. And if in this election that we will probably have, uh, you know, if Boris Johnson is uh, able to be kind of a very charismatic leader, then they'll win, you know, and that that's going to be a, a big thing. And that's, yeah, I think that's his role, really, uh, an election. If they don't have an election, though, they're in trouble because he's a complete liability, you know, like his his tactics in relation to Parliament are completely off, obviously, like evidence. Do you have an example? What what do you think are, is like the worst thing you've seen him do, say, this week? <laughs> well, the uh, decision to decide to sack all these MPs just has made their problem even worse because now effectively they've they've created a bit of momentum behind the opposition where the, oppos- where the conversations in Parliament aren't happening with the government. What is going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in any given day is just going to happen with the opposition. It's not just people rebelling on one vote. They've basically now effectively for all purposes, crossed the floor, which means that the Labour Party isn't going to be sitting in meetings with these guys and, and trying to figure out what do we do next? What, how did these guys strategize as a group? And, you know, he uh, Boris Johnson hasn't won a single, well, he's lost four votes now, uh, which is the same number that Tony Blair lost in, in his however long he was uh, prime minister, you know. I think it's really interesting as well because those kind of movements that we associate with or decisions that we associate with Boris Johnson, like not meeting EU leaders directly after or or calling them straight away directly after becoming prime minister, those are being seen as having Cummings' influence. Those are coming from Dominic Cummings rather than entirely from Boris Johnson. I don't know how true that is. When we think about the Tory rebels, the things that Johnson's getting a lot of flack for might not be his own doing. And I, there, particularly after the firing of Sajid Javid's aide, there were reports that uh, there were tense talks and arguments between Johnson and Cummings. So I think as well, all of this really does depend on how watertight that relationship is and how much trust there is there. Yeah. How, how far is Johnson willing to go on the basis that Cummings will win him an election, how far is he willing to fire people like Winston Churchill's grandson to win an election? Because those 21 didn't have to be fired. Those 21 rebels who voted against the government, it's not automatic that they would have to be fired from the party. No, like here, obviously, it's a much tighter whip. You vote against the party once, no matter what it is, whether it's on military stations in in, in, uh, Westmeath, like you get kicked out. But... um, yeah, like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg have all voted against the government countless times. Um, and one of the guys had never voted against uh, the government and was booted out for this one vote. So, yeah, they didn't have to. But I guess it's 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 this idea that British politics is definitely changing. The Conservative Party is becoming increasingly a populist party. Uh, even in the rhetoric, rhetoric, the ads they're pushing out from the Conservative uh, web pages, we are the party of the people, which is a classic sort of populist line. I mean, they're they're pushing it towards, they're getting close, but you, you'll probably see soon that they'll talk start talking uh, bad about the media. They'll say this, you know, uh, the kind of mainstream media survive and then they'll, they'll start to push against that sort of stuff if they go even further to try to win over the Brexit party, you know. 
it's a good time, I think, to bring in Tom Chiver, science journalist and author of The AI Does Not Hate You. Tom, we've been talking a lot here about who Dominic Cummings is and what he does. You have written a lot about his love of game theory. And one of the lines that stuck out for me was a piece that you wrote in Unheard. I worry that Cummings isn't playing some clever John von Neumann-esque game, but driving his feet down the rails and expecting a train to swerve. Has that happened more quickly than you imagined when you wrote that piece? It does seem to have caught people's attention, which is, I mean, it, it, it's funny because I, I wrote a piece for Unheard and it's quite a speculative thing you know like, it's not like i have some special window like being john malkovich you know into into cummings's brain or anything but what it is is that i i noticed i read some of his blogs you know the great ten thousand word long blogs that he writes and i noticed that um he and i share a lot of sort of in, common interests in that like a lot of the people i read a lot of the really interesting sort of nerdy bloggers that I read and I sort of, and I, I wrote my book about actually, he also reads this sort of this group who are sort of known as the rationalists, which is a bit of a weird name for them. But anyway, they, um, this sort of, uh, nerdy bunch of people who ha- sort of hang out on the internet and in California. And, uh, they, I, I know from his blog role that they, um, that he, he reads a lot of the same people. And at around the time, what, what is it now, a week, a week or two ago, um, when he decided to prorogue or suspend Parliament for how many weeks, he and uh, Boris Johnson were going to try and find various ways to sort of block any parliamentary oversight of, into, 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 the, um, into their actions and so that we, we would crash out of the uh, European Union on October 31st. And it really reminded me of this uh, aspect of game theory in which you uh, imagine two people playing chicken uh, in their cars driving towards each other and the this this classic piece of game theory is that if you want to win at that you know the loser is the person who swerves first and the classic piece of game theory is if you want to win you have to credibly signal to your opponent that you're not only not going to swerve but you are not able to swerve and so they you know the they say what you should do in that situation is soar off your um, steering wheel and you know ostentatiously throw it out the window so that uh, your opponent knows that their options are either crash or uh, swerve, and that's a sort of that's a, a piece of game theory that was brought up in a lot a lot in the 1950s and 60s in the context of nuclear deterrent and the mutually assured um, destruction theory. Uh, people like Herman Kahn and John von Neumann came up with it, and uh, Richard Nixon apparently sort of approved of it and called it madman theory. Anyway, so I wonder if that's what. I wonder, and I still do wonder, if that's what Cummings was doing—is sort of trying to show the EU that he that we're you know we're going to crash out on the EU. We've got no there's no chance for anyone to swerve or to do anything like this. That we're just cutting it, cutting it away. And, and uh, that was my hypothesis that he's made it. That he's trying to drive us, um, make it impossible for us to swerve off the track we're on. Of course, the issue like that I have with that is that I'm not at all sure it's as simple as that. And I think he's if you know, if my wildly speculative uh, suggestion is right, I think he thinks it's a simple game of chicken with two actors. And actually, it's much more complicated than that because there's not only Britain and the EU, there's Britain's government and Britain's parliament and all these various other interplaying things. And uh, there's also there's also the fact that the EU is much larger than us and has other things going on. So it may not be as interested in swerving as we are. So it may, so yeah, the analogy I used was um, uh, he thinks he's playing chicken, but it's actually driving a, at Cinquecento down down towards an oncoming train. Do, do you think his ability as a strategist and his intelligence even is overstated in, you know, this idea that he's a mastermind and a, a Svengali of, of British politics? Is, is, 
Is that true? I don't claim to be any expert in this, but I, I certainly noticed that British politics has a tendency, or British pol- political commentary has a tendency to find one particular advisor in uh, whoever's you know um, in charge decide that that person is the uh, the throbbing uber brain of the moment and you know so so with um david cameron um it was stephen uh, hilton steve hilton who's you know the, the barefoot guy who's now gone to california to go on fox news and uh with um may it was nick timothy who's now trotting out his discredited ideas on the Telegraph, and then um, and with Boris Johnson, it's Cummings who is this sort of sobbing uber brain. And I, I, I get the impression that you know, from reading his blogs, as I've read a few of them, I, I certainly wouldn't say he's anything other than a really clever guy. And he's obviously a clever guy. And he's obviously really thoughtful and got this sort of approach to try, you know, try and eclectic uh, approach to finding out things. And I, I think he is genuinely interested in finding out what's true and what's works, what works, and all that sort of stuff. But this idea that he is a uh, sort of playing seven-dimensional chess. I suspect it's more that he's just one more bright person trying his best to do things and somehow and not always getting it right, just like all the rest of us. And that the idea that he's somehow, yeah, a Svengali figure, it seems to me uh, more a media creation than anything else. In terms of the, the blogs you have read that he's written, other than the game theory, is there any, any other takeaways from it that give you more of an insight into who he is or how he operates? He's quite dismissive of people. Like, I mean, there was one blog post in which he talks about um, Jeremy Hayward, uh, the former, the, the now deceased um, former head of the civil service or the cabinet, cabinet secretary, uh, who is generally held up as having been a pretty, you know, pretty brilliant and uh, thoughtful guy who did, and he's just, you know, he describes him as a courtier fixer. He thinks he's just, he's just someone there to sort of uh, kiss up to the to the politicians. Another thing, in fact, that the rationalist sort of uh, blogs discuss a lot is something called the principle of charity, which is that if you can't understand why someone thinks something, you know, believes something, you shouldn't just assume, well, that's absurd. They're they're obviously stupid and uh, or and or evil, and we should we can be safe, we can safely be ignored. You should maybe think, well, perhaps the the thing is that I don't understand. Uh, I'm I'm missing something here, and there, there is there is some there is more going on here that I'm aware of. And I think like if you are Chipfully dismissing people like Jeremy Hayward as uh, useless courtiers, then uh, perhaps you're missing something. Impression I got is that he's, he's too quick to dismiss people as idiots. I, don't, I, may, I may be wrong, but that's certainly an impression I've got. And I also, I don't think he has a lot of um, time for the, for, you know, she said this publicly a few times, I don't think he has a lot of time for Westminster. There's one of his blog posts he wrote saying, you know, people saying, well, aren't you giving away all your your secrets here on this blog where you write about all you know, the, the stuff you're planning to do and the, the, the ways in which people think. And he said, no, 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 no. No one no one in politics can really pass a headline or a tweet these days. So, you know, there's this stuff here in Word 7,000 of my 10,000 word blog is completely safe. No need to worry about that. And um, I, I suspect he's relatively right about that. Thanks so much for that, Grania, Kev and Tom. I no longer have Benedict Cumberbatch in my head. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry, assistant producers Nikki Ryan and Andy Roberts, who was also the tech operator this episode. Big thanks as ever to Grania for coming back on a Brexit topic and to Kev and Tom. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. 
In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last time, we looked at why we're being told to eat less meat. Also in the back catalogue are episodes around the discoveries being made at Newgrange and the huge rise of measles cases around the world. If you're enjoying these shows, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.